0: I thank God for all who have led us in worship today, and I especially thank God that all six of our missionaries to Niger have returned home safely, and all of them have worshiped with us here at God's house today. So I'm very grateful for that. Yes, yes, yes. We are grateful indeed. We continue a sermon series called Give Me Jesus. We're looking at passages in the four Gospels of the New Testament that show us various things about Christ our Savior. Today we're going to look at Mark chapter 9. I'll read verses 2 through 9 from the New Revised Standard Version and the title of the sermon is A Mountaintop Experience. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my Son, the Beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen, until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. When I was in high school, I would often drive into the hills on the weekend. We lived about 25 minutes from a lovely spot in the Blue Ridge Mountains called Bald Rock, and I loved to go up there. It was refreshing to look out from a high place and to remember how small I am. It was liberating to momentarily rise above the many uh, troubles of the messy valley below. I have always felt closer to God in the mountains, and I know I'm not the only one. There is something about the mountains that evokes the holy. There is something about the mountains that ushers us closer to heaven. There is something about the mountains that makes God feel more real. The Bible indicates as much in its many passages involving mountains. When God first gave the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, Moses had to hike a mountain to retrieve them. The mountain was shaking and burning and smoking as God was revealed to Moses. Moses spoke with God on the heights and came down with God's law. When the prophet Elijah was in dire straits in the book of 1 Kings, he too found himself on a mountain. God told Elijah to pay attention because God was about to pass by. A storm An earthquake and a fire ensued, but God was not in any of those things. Then came the sound of sheer silence. And God spoke to Elijah through a still, small voice right there on the mountain. The Psalms frequently speak of mountains. Psalm 121 famously says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. The prophets mention mountains in their writings as well. For example, Isaiah 25 looks forward to the day when God will prepare a lavish feast for all peoples on a mountain. Mountains play a significant role in the four Gospels, too. In Mark 3, Jesus ascends a mountain... And appoints his twelve disciples in Matthew 5 through 7 Jesus preaches his most famous sermon from a mountain Jesus's glorious transfiguration also unfolds on a mountain which is not surprising since so many theological events had previously occurred on mountains yes in Mark Chapter 9, Jesus takes his three closest disciples up on a high mountain apart from everything else. And there amid the summit winds, Jesus is transfigured before them. The Greek term is metamorpho, from which we get our English word metamorphosis. It connotes a drastic transformation. Jesus' normal appearance was dramatically altered. His clothes became dazzling, so dazzling, in fact, that verse 4 tells us no laundry service on planet Earth could possibly have gotten his clothes to be that. White. There's no detergent that could have produced this level of radiance, nor is there any bleach that could have made his clothes gleam like they did. Only divine power could make garments shine like that. As for the meaning of the dazzling clothes, an Old Testament passage in Daniel 7 depicts God dressed in bright white garments. In light of this scripture, Jesus' dazzling white clothes suggest that he is a divine being visiting earth. His sparkling array of attire indicates that his nature, his person, and his identity transcend that of normal human beings. The point is that he is the Son of God. In John's gospel, we learn that Jesus was in the beginning, that he was with God, and that he was God. Although Jesus was dwelling in the heights of heaven, he emptied himself of divine glory and came down to earth to save us. What we see in the Transfiguration is what Jesus looked like before he laid his glory aside. At the transfiguration, we see Christ for who he is in eternity. The three disciples on the pinnacle of the mountain reached an apex of divine revelation as they beheld Christ in all of his transcendence, in all of his glory, in all of his divinity. Back in the fall of 1998, I went with some college buddies to the George Strait Music Festival at Clemson University's football stadium. It was a massive, all-day concert featuring some of the biggest country acts of the time, including Mark Wills, Joe D. Kenny Chesney, Tim McGraw, and finally the headliner himself, George Strait. Toward the end of George Strait's set, at the very end of the whole concert, my buddies and I made our way from the cheap seats down onto the field level. And then step by step, we progressed closer and closer to the stage. And at one key point, a security guard saw what we were doing and smiled and waved us on through. So we kept going and before long, we found ourselves right up there in the first couple rows immediately in front of the stage. We were standing an arm's length from the stage as George Strait was doing his encore numbers with thousands and thousands and thousands of people behind us cheering and singing and uh, carrying on. He was singing one of his signature hits entitled Blue Clear Sky, which is still a jam, by the way. People were going crazy. They're waving their arms, dancing, carrying on, yelling. Ladies were swooning, too. I saw a woman from my church, and she said, hey, isn't this awesome? He stared at me through the whole second verse. I was thinking, if you say so, Nancy, if you say so. Everybody was dancing and singing along amid the flashing lights and the driving music. Then I saw George Strait briefly remove his black cowboy hat. I remember the moment vividly because I stopped cheering and stood there in shock. Without his signature hat, George Strait appeared to me as a regular person. For a moment, his celebrity was eclipsed by his humanity this legendary country singer referred to as the king of country music who's recorded over 60 number one hits appeared to me as just a human being it could have been any celebrity elon musk is just a human being oprah winfrey is just a human being Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling are just human beings. LeBron James is just a human being. Rihanna, Messi, Warren Buffett, all just human beings. I would submit to you that in that revelatory moment at the concert 25 years ago, I saw George Strait for who he really is. Similarly, in Jesus' transfiguration, he was shown to be who he truly is. Except instead of a celebrity revealed as a human being, Jesus was a human being revealed as the divine Son of God. The transfiguration did not transformed Jesus into something different from what he had been, it rather revealed who he truly is. His normal appearance was briefly eclipsed, allowing his divinity to come into full view. As the disciples squinted their eyes at Jesus' radiant garments, Moses and Elijah appeared there with him. Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. Together they symbolize the Old Testament. Their presence conveys that the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Their presence conveys that Jesus' authority exceeds theirs. Their presence further conveys that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, the Savior of God's people. Deuteronomy 18 promised that a prophet like Moses would one day come to God's people, and Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Likewise, Malachi 4 prophesied that Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. And here Elijah comes and appears with the Lord Jesus. While the visual spectacle of this scene brims with theological significance, it's also noteworthy that the three figures talked with one another. Don't you wish we knew what Moses and Elijah and Jesus said at this conference to top all Christian conferences? Don't you wish we knew what Moses and Elijah and Jesus said at this spiritual mountaintop retreat to top all spiritual mountaintop retreats? At least we know the basic subject of their conversation because Luke's account of the transfiguration says that they discussed Jesus' upcoming departure in Jerusalem. From the heights of the mountain, they were looking toward the location where Jesus would be crucified. From the cloudy mount of transfiguration, the ensuing crucifixion came into clear view. As they continued talking, a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came from the cloud. This was the same cloud that rested on Mount Sinai when Moses retrieved the Ten Commandments. This was the same voice that spoke to Elijah on the mountain through the sound of sheer silence. And this was also the same voice we had already heard at Jesus' baptism back in Mark 1, when the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Except this time the voice said, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I find this a striking word of instruction. Because we might well expect the voice to say, Look at him. After all, Jesus' clothes were dazzling and his full glory was on full display. Matthew and Luke add that his face was radiant too. Why didn't God's voice say, This is my beloved son? Look at him! I think it's because Jesus' words are more important than his looks. In the last teaching he gave before going up that mountain, in Mark 8, 31 and following, Jesus spoke about how he was going to suffer and die on the cross. The disciples needed to listen to him so they could understand that following Christ involves not only ascending the mountaintop, but also descending into the valley. They needed to listen to him so they could understand that following Christ is not only about basking in glorious light, but also about bearing an inglorious cross. They needed to listen to him so they could understand that a godly life is not to be confused with a glamorous They needed to listen to him so they could understand that this transcendent, uh, resplendent, divine figure before them would soon be crucified. The transfiguration and the crucifixion are both in view on the mountain. Here he is privately exalted. There he is publicly humiliated. Here he is gleaming with brightness. There he is overshadowed by darkness. Here he wears dazzling clothes. There he wears a crown of thorns. Here he appears with Moses and Elijah. There he is flanked by two bandits. Here he is admired by his disciples. There he is scorned by his detractors. Here the cloud of God's presence engulfs him. There he cries, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here he appears powerful. There he appears pathetic. Here he looks beautiful. There he looks hideous. Here he is transfigured. There he is disfigured. Here he sparkles in all the loftiness of his divinity, There he suffers in all the lowliness of his humanity. And still, he is the same Savior in both places. At the transfiguration, God's voice announces that Jesus is the Son of God. And at the crucifixion, a Roman centurion's voice announces that Jesus is the Son of God. He is one and the same Savior, Christ glorified and Christ crucified. He is one and the same Savior, divine Son and suffering servant. He is one and the same Savior, fully God and fully man. This is the incarnation in a nutshell. On the mountain, we see the splendor of His scintillating glory. On the cross, we see the splendor of his sacrificial love. Peter, of course, wanted everybody to stay up there on that mountain. He didn't want to leave. I understand the impulse. I can't begin to tell you how many mountaintop experiences I have wanted to prolong and protract and perpetuate for as long as possible. I can't begin to tell you how many times I've reached a certain peak and desired never to return to the messy valley below. I sympathize with Peter as he blunderingly suggests that they build some shelters up there on the mountain and camp out indefinitely. Let's stay here, guys. Peter preferred the place where Christ and his disciples were all splendor and no scars. Peter preferred the place where Christ and his disciples were all shine And no struggle. Peter preferred the place where Christ and his discipleship was all glory and no pain. All light and no darkness. All transcendence and no troubles. But Christ looked out from the safety of that summit. And saw a valley below. A valley of heartache and betrayal. A valley of sickness and strife. A valley of injustice and brokenness. A valley of violence and sin. A valley of real life down there in the shadow of death. And he who had just finished shimmering brighter than the sun, led his disciples down into that dark valley to help some people on his way to the cross. That's the kind of love Jesus has for the world, and that's the kind of love he calls us to display. We who perceive his glory are called to follow him into the downside of human Existence. We are called to stop looking at him and start listening to him. We are called to move from admiring his splendor to taking up his cross. We are called to worship him on the heights and to serve him in the valley. We who perceive his glory are called to walk with Christ through the ups and downs of discipleship Until that day when the glory we share with Him is prolonged and protracted and perpetuated throughout all eternity. Amen. And now we come to the Lord's table to take the bread and the cup together. As our deacons serve the elements to you right where you are, we welcome all with faith to partake with us.